Welcome to No Ad, No Problem, a podcast devoted to college tennis and growing the game. Check us out on Twitter at JTweetsTennis and Instagram at No Ad, No Problem. I'm your host, John. Let's serve it up. Hey, everyone. Just a quick programming note. Ethan and I went a little long when previewing our NCAA quarterfinals. So what you will hear on this episode is our thoughts on the super regional format, some improvements we would love to see to Lake Nona, and our women's NCAA Elite Eight preview. We have split the men's Elite Eight preview into a separate episode, which you can also hear on the No Ad, No Problem podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. We have made it. The college tennis team season comes to a conclusion this week at the USTA National Campus in Orlando as it hosts the D1 team quarterfinals and beyond. Joining me to preview the Elite Eight matchups is Ethan Moskowski. Ethan, congrats on finishing your first year of law school. I had to bring in some heavy hitters last week to replace you, but it is great to have you back. How are you doing? Great now. Yeah. Enjoying a little mini vacation before I start uh, start summer work in June. Going to be down in Orlando. Looking, looking forward to it. This is like, this is it. We're at the peak. This is the final little push. Uh, so yeah, really, really excited for uh, for this weekend. Yeah, it's truly my favorite week of the year. I am on vacation for it. It is my vacation as well. So uh, it's a great time of the year. I'm looking forward to getting down to Orlando. Uh, and if you are in Orlando, if you listen to the podcast, please come up, say hello. Looking forward to chatting with everyone uh, it's been great for people to exchange DMs with. Uh, Ethan will be easy to find. He will be in UVA gear. Uh, I will not be, but uh, come out, come <laughs> look for us. Uh, looking forward to to seeing all of you there. Uh, that's one of the beauties of college tennis is it's still a, a small community, right? So looking forward to seeing people out there. All right. On today's show, Ethan, we're going to start with a few miscellaneous topics that are timely and important to discuss here as it relates to the NCAA championships. And then we will dive into the Elite Eight and the way that we are going to preview and be efficient on this Elite Eight preview pod is we're going to give one takeaway from each team's round of 16 match. We're going to provide each team's calculus for their Elite Eight matchup. And then, of course, we will make predictions and we will put our reputations on the line here and uh, looking forward to doing that. And I'm sure in those conversations, as people come up to us, Ethan, people have some thoughts on your predictions. I am sure. I will be accused of bias. I am sure. So <laughs> well, looking forward to it. That is true. All right. So <laughs> let's dive in two topics before we preview these matches. And the first is the super regional format. So this year we had the third iteration of the super regional format where you play your first two rounds in a, in a regional format. And then you, you know, if you're the top eight seed, you get to host, you play one match in the, in the sweet 16. We had this uh, in 2019, in 2022, and then this year in 2023. If you have listened to Alex Gruskin's press row over on the Cracked Interviews podcast, you've heard him ask a lot of coaches, a lot of players about which do they prefer? 
having all 16 teams at the final site or this super regional format. And one of the key takeaways from those podcasts were ultimately people want to play in front of fans and there are going to be more fans in the stands in this super regional format that is played on college campuses than there are at the final site when it's the Sweet 16. I know, Ethan, you have seen... Actually, have you seen the Sweet 16 a final site? Yeah, my, as a player? My, uh, my fourth year, we had the COVID final site. There you go, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I know you've seen it as a Didn't player. Didn't like that. No, that, a little PTSD there for you. Didn't, didn't go um, well for me. But the the things people talk about is that there just aren't that many people in the early morning matches, just in matches in general, in the Sweet 16 in the final site, typically during a work week. And much better to play these super regional matches, you know, at times fans can attend. And you look across the country and the attendance numbers are always very strong. Georgia against Harvard had over 3,000 people. Obviously, they're the exception, but they are also the North Star in a That's lot of ways. It's a crazy number. It's but a crazy number. It's a crazy Tennis. number, but it's it's awesome to see, right? And you're not getting that if that Georgia-Harvard match is played in Orlando in the final site. No. No. So I first want to say I love seeing the fans at the Super Regional format. I think it is awesome. I also want us to keep in mind as we celebrate the fans in these matches that we have not done anything to really improve attendance at the final site. I've been going to the NCAA final site since 2010. There is nary a single change that has been visible to try and drive more fans to the final site. So it does feel in some aspects like we're just passing the buck back to teams and schools to do the marketing, to do the promotions, to get the fans out. Then institutions like the NCAA, like the ITA are, are not doing. So that's just one caveat for me. Uh, Ethan, before I share my my final thoughts on the super regional format, you've seen now three years of it. Um, do you think it should be here to stay? Well, so first I'd say I'm biased to it because loving UVA and being UVA in the three years that there have been super regionals, UVA's hosted a super regional. So I like it a lot more because we've always been able to take advantage of it, right? You know, I, I, I think having that third match at home makes a tremendous difference. Uh, the, the year that we did the final site last 16, my senior year, we lost to USC in the round of 16 in Orlando. And having been in Charlottesville for last year's round of 16 match against South Carolina, the year before um, the match against uh, Stanford in the in the round of 16 or two years before because of COVID, um, the the crowd turnout was amazing and it would have made a difference. You know, I, I maintain that that match is different if it's played in Charlottesville, which it would have been in a in a sweet 16 uh, super regional year. That said. Uh, I I think there is some allure to to having everybody at at the same site. It's fun for the players to have all the other teams sort of circulating. You know, it it feels a little bit more uh, like a sort of tennis festival. I think when you've got thirty two teams between the men and the women there. Um, but you're exactly right, which is the turnout is so much better on college campuses than it is at the final site. If nothing's going to change about the promotion of the event at the final site, then yeah, we should absolutely keep super regionals 
at at college campuses. I think even as a road team, I'm sure like Harvard had a fantastic time. I'm sure dealing with the crowd in Athens, right? Even though it disadvantages you, it's still such a fun thing as opposed to, yeah, being the noon match in Orlando. There are eight people in the stands. And in the Harvard, Georgia case, right? They're all Georgia fans. Like all eight people in Orlando are Georgia fans anyway. And myself as an unbiased fan. So I'm one of the eight. (laughs) You'd, You'd rather go to a college campus. I like that it splits the tournament up into sort of three parts. I think the players enjoy that a lot as well. I think it allows you to sort of focus differently. It allows you to be more match focused on, you know, the next round and the next round and the next round. Um, so I think there are a lot of advantages to it from a scheduling standpoint and, and from a crowd turnout standpoint, if, if the NCAA is not going to do more to push the final site, then super regionals should, uh, should stick around. Yeah, I think that's true. It's just a tough pill to swallow of, you know, we're doing it as a bandaid fix for the fact that like there were no uh, real visible attempts to try and push the, the final site. Right. And so that's disappointing. I do think though, I think it's too much of an advantage for the top eight seeds. You look at the, that Ohio state, Arizona match, that match could be very different at a neutral site. And you're all re- as a top eight seed, you're already getting hosting first two rounds. You're already getting a more favorable draw. Like at some point, I mean, how far do you want to take this? Should we play the semifinals, the quarterfinals at, at the home sites? Like it becomes a little challenging in that regard uh, because, you know, you look on the women's side, like, We've never had a top eight seed lose in the super regional format. I think that's different. No, but we did get we did get a non top eight seed because a top eight seed lost. Yeah, in but the first that, round. But that would have ha- yeah. that could have happened to any. No, the home year. team the home team wins generally speaking. Right, last year it was on the men's side and women's side. It was chalk. Yep. And this year on the men's side, the nine seed beat the eight seed, and the nine seed was actually the number eight ranked team in the country. Yeah. So, so it, it 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 absolutely gives a huge advantage to the home team. You know, you're talking about in Georgia's case 3000 fans. You know, yeah, I think in like Texas and UVA and you're you know, you're talking high hundreds, you know, pushing 1000 fans potentially. It's and in Texas, right, you're on a 9-hour delay or whatever it is and there's still that many people there. So, you know, it can be a humongous home court advantage. But I still think, like I said, I maintain even the road teams would prefer that to playing, you know, a 9 a.m. match with nobody there besides like you, me and Alex Gruskin and their parents. Right. I I still maintain that the road teams would prefer the crazy environment because it's more fun. That's what college tennis is. College tennis is playing in front of people yelling and screaming at you. It's not playing in a super sterile environment with, you know, cracked rackets watching. It's so interesting you say that, and this will be our, our final point here. I think looking back on their tennis careers, I would assume Harvard players are thrilled they have that experience, right? That's an experience you look yeah. back on now in the moment, right? If you were to say, yeah, but if you play that at the neutral site and you make it to the quarterfinal, that is something that the school, maybe the coaches would certainly prefer. So there are pluses and minuses to that. But I think you're right. I mean, those experiences are certainly much longer lasting than the making it around further, even if that is like a historical moment for the school and the coaches. It's more fun. Yeah. It's it's just more fun. Going to Orlando is great. It's just, it's not, um, 
it doesn't have the same sort of rah-rah craziness that that playing at a Georgia or Texas or Ohio State even, you know, can can have. So from yep. a player's standpoint, I think Super Regionals are probably not going anywhere. Well, I hope they do, because when they <laughs> get rid of the individual tournament, uh, I I think they're going to need to do something, right? Having just the four days of quarterfinal, semifinal, final is going to feel a little barren. Uh, at the final site when they get rid of the individuals there. So we'll have to see. Um, We will see what happens over these next few years. All right, Ethan, our next topic here, I have entitled it Five Improvements to Lake Nona. So you and I have both been at uh, Lake Nona the last two years they have hosted, the only two years they have hosted in 2019 and in 2021. You were there as a player for UVA. I was there as a spectator. Twice, yes. Twice, I was there. 2019 and 2021. Uh, Okay, I have five things that I would like to see at Lake Nona this year, some of which could still be possible, others of which I do not think are happening. (laughs) You want chain link fence? You want chain link fence in front of the stands? I know you. You love chain link fence. (laughs) That's a Big Ten thing. Uh, Okay, so (laughs) five things I hope to see different this year than we have in the past let me know when you want to chime in all right the first is we need more stands i don't understand why there is not seating on both sides of the courts at their collegiate facility you look at that final against florida and baylor in 2021 it's standing room only there is plenty of room to build more stands there and i don't know why they have not done that that is number one on my list. So I would say one of the things I dislike about that facility a ton, and I dislike this about all the facilities that are set up this way, is when they have six straight courts with no break in the middle. Uh, I think it's one of the weirdest choices. Putting that break in the middle allows more space for fans to congregate, even if you don't let them in the middle. Like, I don't think people realize that is that even if you don't have that block in the middle of courts three and four or whatever it is for fans to go on, that's the way the stands curve literally give fans more space. That said, you can sit now as a fan on the side of court six, but not on the side of court one. Is that is that right in Orlando? Yeah, but no, I don't think that's right. I think that's just players. And there's like little bleachers. Oh, it's just they do try and reserve player only areas, which. As a player, I definitely appreciated. And as a fan, I hate um, because as a player, I used to always want to stand on the side of court one or at UVA's case where we had a break in the middle side of court three or four or side of court six because it puts you way closer to everything that's going on. Uh, they should let fans on the side of court six. I understand why they're keeping fans off you know, one area for players only just so they can leave their stuff somewhere and not worry about it being you know messed with. I, I Like I get it having some player only areas, but yeah, no, I agree. The seating is not great in Lake Nona at all for as no. great a facility as it is. The seating's bad. And they have plenty of room, right? I mean, it was just like a, a dirt yeah. plot of land around it. So they had plenty of room to build more. They need more stands. Unfortunately, we don't have those this year, uh, but that was number one on my list. The second is permanent scoreboards every year. There are massive issues with the scoreboards in Orlando. They have some temporary scoreboard, jerry-rigged by some hanging crane. 
it never works yeah. and you're forced and to it watch moves. It, it moves it, in the wind in the wind <laughs> and you're like this is a safety hazard and you're forced to watch the live scores from your phone you're sitting there in 95 degree weather you're squinting in the sun to try and follow it i don't know why we don't have permanent scoreboards here in orlando particularly because You'd l- I'd like to see the scores of the other matches as well, right? So scoreboards are always an issue. That would be an improvement I would make. And this is permanently and easily fixable. Most courts, most facilities outdoors, with some exception, put the scoreboards behind the center two courts. Okay. And it's a big scoreboard. Behind both banks of courts in Orlando is nothing. Like no- there's nothing there. You could very easily build a scoreboard right behind it permanently that just shows you all of the match scores. The scoreboards on the court are are totally fine, but those just show only that court, yeah. which is not you know super helpful. Like you said, especially if you have two matches going on at the same time and you're trying to sort of see what's going on on both. Yeah. I mean, even the scoreboards on the court are not great because they just tell you the name of the player. They don't give you the school. So for like casual fans, it became it's yeah. tough to know like yeah. who is what. I mean, look, I'm envisioning you can have stands behind both of those uh, sides of the courts that don't have anything right now and have the scoreboard there is easily done. I mean, all that costs is, is money, uh, which I mean, I'm sure we could find it. All right. My next number three improvement to Lake Nona is we need more food at Lake Nona. Now they have these like tiny little concession stands that serve like hot dogs and licorice. And then they do have the like permanent cafe that exists just like at the USTA national campus. The problem is the hours of that cafe do not change or extend for when they're hosting this event. So for example, we know this year there's going to be late nights. That thing closes at like 3 p.m. So where are you going to get food? It's just at these little concession stands. Why don't we bring in some food trucks, right? Bring in some local restaurants who can give a credit if you come back to their happy hour the next day. Uh, You know, I think that that is a great solution, particularly with the late night hours um, this year. I would love to see more food. All right. My next. Yeah, Ethan agrees. My next one is we need to have brand activations or sponsor booths at this facility. Lake Nona in particular has more space than maybe your average college campus. Why don't we get Tennis Point? who sponsors the ITA rankings out there with a radar gun, right? And have kids be able to play with the radar gun. Why don't we have a real estate company who is pitching moving to Lake Nona? Why don't we have a bounce house for kids? This needs to be a fun environment for people to come to, particularly because you have it hosted at the national campus. You have people playing tennis there recreationally all day long, bring people over to the collegiate side of this facility, engage fans, give sponsors a reason to come. Most years, there's just like nothing. Uh, So we need to have that. Uh, Now, I know it wouldn't be something like Universal Tennis, but like in a non-Cold War era between Universal Tennis and the USTA, like that could have been a thing, right? Bring Universal Tennis, get them to have their you know, UTR events, all of that. So Ethan agrees with that as well. 
And last one, just because I had to get this in here, Ethan, and we needed to talk about it before the Elite Eight, is what is going on with these times this year. This year, the Elite Eight matches that we are about to preview, I promise, are not starting before 5 p.m., and they are simultaneous, meaning you're going to have two quarterfinals at the same time. You're going to have semifinals at the same time. Ethan, my question for you is very simple, and it is why? Well, so from looking at the like tournament central page that mm-hmm. has been launched by, I think it is by the USDA and not by yeah. the NCAA and not by, which is its own problem, actually. But the in looking at it, it looks like the first two days there's other divisions yes playing in the yep. morning which mm-hmm. by the way i just want to say i think it's actually a really great thing that they've utilized the enormity of lake nona to bring d1 d2 and d3 tennis to the same place for the national championships in and around the same time it's obviously not feasible to have all three tournaments existing at the exact same time so d3 got started yesterday d2 i think the finals is tomorrow Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's, I think part of it is that Wednesday and Thursday, there are other divisions playing there are. in the morning. Yep. So because there are other divisions playing in the morning, I, I think they sort of box themselves in now why the semis and finals are still at five to 8 PM is sort of baffling to me because they're, that's it. It's only the men and the women. And at and the same time, to do both women's matches at the same time and both men's matches at the same time. Now, the competitor in me goes for competitive balance. It is more fair to have both matches happening at the same time. I However, call, no, sorry, it's idiotic. Total BS on that. And here's why. I always hear about people talking about like the time equity and like re- recovery. You know what doesn't have that is any single one of these teams conference championships every single one has a one it's one of the only times in the year when you're playing back to back to back none of these schools have equal rest opportunity in their conference championship i don't want to hear about equal rest opportunity in the ncaa's particularly when you can make accommodations for this we one have a rest day but for the women right and we also have this baked in nothing day between team and individuals yeah. it wouldn't be that yeah. difficult to add in another day three straight days i do think is a lot but i'm tired of hearing about it I, because we don't have it in any yeah. other like time of year well so but i would say for instance if one of the men's semifinals is at 8 p.m and then the finals at 3 p.m the idea that that team could be going to bed that night at one in the morning and then have a 3 p.m match the next day i don't i don't love but typically that's not how it's worked uh in in terms of the scheduling look last year the what uva finished both its quarterfinal match the latest and its semifinal match the latest and was the eventual winner so uh, i agree i think if you're going to give teams a rest day too i do not this i i had this gripe last year i had the I do not understand taking the rest day between the first and second match. No. This makes no sense to me. Take the rest day before the final. I, and like, I thought that's what I they were going to do. 
I think it would be phenomenal, by the way, as a, as a way to expose the community to college tennis. Take a rest day before the finals, have scheduled practice, make them open so that fans, young kids can come see, expose the community to college tennis and the practice the day before the national championship. Let fans get right to the sides of the courts the way they do at the U.S. Open or any slam to watch the teams practice, even if it doesn't work immediately as a marketing opportunity. It's something different. And then you don't have to worry about the competitive balance of scheduling because everybody's had a day off. Before yeah. the finals, exactly. that's when you're most worried about it. I don't think there's any concern really about the rest day between the quarters and semis. It's just, are we having a team who's now in the finals, who's played the latest match consecutive days and and now they kind of get the short end of the stick. So it's like, just move the rest day. Yeah. Um, the scheduling's weird. I do think like night matches have a bit of an aura to them that I like. Like, I like the fact that there is some focus on getting a night match. I don't like starting matches at 8 p.m., earliest 8 p.m., knowing that if there's a really competitive match, it's going to get pushed. Because like, if you have back-to-back really hyper-competitive matches on the same bank, you could have a team finishing at one in the morning. Like, yep. if if there's one three-and-a-half-hour match and then you need a warm-up, and th- like, it's not, it's not hard to imagine a match ending after midnight. So I, I don't love that. That's my real issue is is with all of the matches happening at the same time, the likelihood that you have one match in particular that, that goes way long, even, even with the matches starting at the same time, they're probably not going to start at the same time. So it it does a little bit create like this self-defeating prophecy, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd prefer like three and six if we wanted to do it this way. I don't think five and eight makes any sense. Yeah, particularly like three just, and six makes a ton of sense to me. If you will, if you're really dead set on doing it this way with the matches happening at the same time like this, three and six p.m. are the most logical time slots. Like five and eight is too late. The eight p.m. matches could end past midnight. If you start a match at three, even if you push a six p.m. match all the way to seven thirty, very rarely are college tennis matches four and a half hours. Yeah, like. Uh, I, yeah, I don't like five and eight at all. And the sun should be a factor. I don't like this. Like if you want to host a national championship in Orlando, the, the team should have to come prepared for the heat and the humidity and the weather. You don't get to basically give teams an out that play in areas where they can't play in heat and humidity. You don't get to give them an out by saying like, oh, we're just going to have you play at 8 p.m. You know who I'm talking to. Yeah. Like, you know who I'm talking to. <laughs> well, like, it's you don't also- get a free pass. It's also becoming a trend where the environment that these teams are playing at in the NCAA championships is wildly different than every other match, right, uh, throughout the year. And it's either because they are going indoors or because they're playing these incredibly late night matches. How many teams have a dual match starting at 8 p.m. during the entirety of the season? Not one. I mean, Texas, right, right, had like the one match against CCU that started at 7. Sure. So one, you have to play under the lights. One match. Some schools don't even have lights. And I think you talked about it. The one of the exciting parts this year is the additional matches from the other divisions. But if there is a dollop of rain, right, this could get really dicey very quickly. So and I don't understand this format because we we cater to the Midwestern teams from a from a atmosphere standpoint okay we're super willing to move matches indoors right and we're super willing to start matches super late so that it's not hot 
Why do we cater to the fact that Midwest teams are at a disadvantage when it comes to playing in heat and humidity, but not the fact that Southern teams are at a disadvantage of playing indoors? We like it's not balanced, actually. Yeah. So well, I, I don't understand this. Well, I will say like, I don't get it. These Midwest teams do not even have lights at their court. So they are going to be yeah, disadvantaged in fair. playing under the lights. The last thing I will add as, oh, why are these times the way they are? Is it could potentially be because of broadcasting. Tennis Channel is carrying yeah. the the matches Which here. Is good. Thumbs up. That thumbs is up that is a thumbs up. We're happy to see that on Tennis Channel. The the reason why it would need to be later is because they're broadcasting tournaments like Rome on the ATP yeah. and WTA side, and so they don't want to conflict with European hours. However, given that these matches are simultaneous, it means that Tennis Channel is only carrying one match one at match. one time. Yeah. So if you're only going to carry one match at one time, by the way, the undercard matches there are going to be on the Cracked Rackets YouTube if you're curious of how they're going to be broadcasted. Why wouldn't you play matches earlier in the day? And then Tennis Channel can get the the one match. And I would argue in the quarterfinals, the undercard matches are the better matches. <laughs> well, that's good for Cracked Rackets. And we'll get you can to check that. that out on the YouTube. All right. That was our preamble for Orlando. <laughs> Let's get into our women's elite eight. Ethan, I did have an, a rabbit hole we could go down about the love bugs, but we just don't have time to. Uh... He's got no love bugs. That is, I, I'm not kidding. The the photographer who photographs UVA, UVA athletics, Matt Riley, shout out Matt Riley. He's awesome. Uh, he literally, whenever he sees me, we just talk about how terrible that experience was because he like. He had a crazy, he photographed everything. So he was like flying from a lacrosse national championship to Orlando, back to a lacrosse national championship. And so he shows up in Orlando, gets to the courts like 30 minutes before the match starts. And it's just bugs everywhere. And he's like, what on earth am I doing here? Yeah, the 2019 <laughs> experience was truly apocalyptic. 2021, we had must have missed the love bug season. So we'll have to see. I mean, fingers crossed. I know. This year. It's crossed. It's such a. Uh... I can't. I can't do that again. I can't. It's so gross. It's one of the grossest. It's hard to explain to somebody who's not done that. It's so disgusting. Yeah. Okay. My like, one call to people gross. is: if you're in Florida, let me know. I tried to Google like, are the love bugs here? The problem is, it's yeah, like, when it's do like love bugs happen? Yeah, it's like water is wet to people in Florida. So I, I didn't see any articles. I'm like looking for the articles online. If you live is there in, something we can do so they don't land on me and get in my shoes. Yeah. If you're in Central like, Florida. I came home from that match and dumped dead love bugs out of my shoes. Like they're Okay, that's gross. It's so gross. Okay, that it's was so gross. gross. Okay, we will now move on to the Women's Elite Eight matches. These begin on Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern. Again, the way we are going to cover these is we will give one round of 16 takeaway from each team. We will dive into some history of the teams if they have played. Uh, and then we will give our calculus for each team winning. And we will ultimately give our prediction. All right, where we will start is the top of the draw. You have number one, North Carolina, facing two-time defending NCAA champion, number eight, Texas. North Carolina comes in having beaten Florida 4-1. Texas beat Pepperdine 4-3. All right, one round of 16 takeaway. I will start for North Carolina, and that is that I am not sold on their new doubles teams. So one of the things that was lost in the 
Abby Forbes at three, Fiona Crawley down to two, kerfuffle was the fact that they completely rejiggered all of their doubles teams. And they have Abby Forbes and Fiona Crawley at one. I'm not sold on these new doubles teams. And that was the one point they drop against Florida. So my takeaway was doubles could be more vulnerable for North Carolina. However, they looked incredibly strong in singles against Florida. They did not drop a set there. Last thing on the lineup kerfuffle. Look, it's very hard for North Carolina to convince us that Abby Forbes should have been at number three when they pull her in this match against Florida uh, from the number four position. After losing the doubles point, it really undermines that argument. But that is my one round of 16 takeaway. Ethan, any takeaways from you about this Texas team who is back into the quarterfinals? I mean, the most quietly impressive thing, I think, that came out of that Texas Pepperdine match, which is an amazing match, like the best round of 16 match on the women's side, probably. I mean, that we couldn't see. Couldn't see. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't. The score line says it was really great. But I'm really impressed. Charlotte Chavadapon takes the first set off of Savannah Brodus the entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Texas... It, I I use the term all the time, institutional know-how, right? Like what you you change the players, you move people around, but at a certain point, you just have a group of people in there that have just this institutional belief that they can win matches like that. Yeah, and I that's a little bit. I think what that came down to is just they just know that they can win matches like that. And you, you know, do I think they beat UNC? No, I don't. But this is a really kind of a big test for UNC. They're they're playing a team that has more know-how in this situation than they do. They've lost a doubles point. This Texas team, there's no doubt this Texas team believes that they can beat UNC, right? The, the proof is in the pudding. They've done it before. So this could get interesting, right? Like yeah. Texas winning the match the way that they did against Pepperdine. I think sort of sets the stage for them to be big underdogs that everybody's going to go, yeah, they're big underdogs, but like they could do it, right? right? Yeah. Like, it it kind of feels, it feels like that. They're big underdogs, but they could do it. Like it wouldn't blow me away. No, and because they're certainly peaking at the right time. We've seen this each and every yeah. year. And these two teams know each other yep. really well, right? They've both been at the top of the game since covid it really started in the indoors final in 2021 when kind of this upstart Texas team with amazing match that we were able to see, you know, five freshmen, Texas goes on to win the NCAAs that year, the following year, last year, they beat North Carolina in the NCAA semifinals, you know, giving North Carolina their third straight semifinal loss, even though that match did move indoors due to weather. So, I think you're right. These teams know each other very well. Texas has the belief that they can do it. And that belief seems to be permeating across even players that haven't done it before. Who haven't done it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You look at Nicole Kieran at number one. I was blown away that she took that match against Lisa Zarr. Lisa Zarr, who was played deep in these NCAA tournaments. When that match got to a tiebreak, I thought no chance freshman Nicole Kieran gets this done. And she does. So, and it makes this match very interesting, you know, to very strong teams over the past few years in terms of calculus i think unc's calculus is doubles fiona crawley over 
Shavath Panit too. Crawley won that match when they played uh, indoors last year at NCAAs. And then I think North Carolina is going to feel really good at five and six, whether they play, you know, Tran and Yarlagata, whether Scotty is at five and Forbes is in. I think over Rivkin and Rapalu, I think they'll feel strong about that. And if they don't get doubles, I think they'll feel good about Brantmeyer over Cure. And I think, again, North Carolina is the favorite in this match. And I do think they have more pathways on the Texas side. I don't see a path for them without winning the doubles point. I think they have to take the doubles point. And then if they do, I think there is a pathway. I think Zainalova at three over Tangilig is a point they have to have. And then at number four, I think Pachkaleva over Abby Forbes if she plays there. The last point's going to be hard to come by. I didn't get to see that match against, you know, Lisa Zar, but I think it has to be at number one with Nicole Kieran, the freshman, maybe playing her best tennis. Ultimately, Ethan, I see North Carolina taking this match. I think it's going to be 4-1. What say you? Yeah, I, I think I think North Carolina probably wins either way. I think it's a narrow route for Texas. If there's one team that can beat UNC on an extremely narrow road, it's probably Texas. Right. Of the eight teams that are left, if you're going to pick some, some teams don't have that narrow of a route. Right. Like we've spoken about, there are there are teams with a broader way to get to four points than than Texas. But given how narrow the path is, Texas is probably the only team that could pull off what is going to essentially have to be a straight flush. I think I agree with you entirely on how Texas wins this. It's it's probably doubles one, three and four. I I, I just I can't see the other matches working for them. Uh, I'll go. UNC wins 4-2. I I think I think Texas can win a doubles point and I like Zanalova a lot. Uh I still just think there's too many options for UNC. I, I I can't see that Texas actually executing on the extremely narrow path, but I think it's there for them. Yep. Should they have the right day. I agree. It it would everything would have to break right for this Texas team and look, we've seen that the past 2 years where everything does break happen. right for them in May. <laughs> All right, so let's move to the second match in the top half. You have number four, Georgia, versus number five, Michigan. How they got here, Georgia knocked off Oklahoma in a very tight 4-1 match, and Michigan knocked off Virginia 4-2. All right, takeaways from these round of 16 matches. On the Georgia side, for me, it has to be doubles. I've talked all season long about this Georgia team just so underperforming in doubles and they didn't have Liam Ma in the, in the doubles lineup. I mean, they could hardly win doubles points in the SEC and they go up against an Oklahoma team that is 57 and 15 in doubles sets this year. And Georgia didn't have any issues. Georgia dominates at two and three and they were up five, four at the doubles point clinch. This is a really big game changer for Georgia, in my opinion, because they are one of the teams that you feel like one through six, they can go up against anyone. So if they feel like they can take a doubles point and they do take a doubles point, that's massive for Georgia. On the Michigan side, I don't have a single like player takeaway, but for me, this Michigan team is just extremely resilient. You know, I thought Virginia came out quite hot in that match. They 
Virginia takes doubles and they take three first sets. All Virginia needed to do was hang on, but hang on, they did not. Gala Chirito, who made Ethan's uh, NCAA All-Star team, she pushes back and she wins at six. Ethan, any other takeaways for you about either of this Georgia or Michigan team? No, I think you nailed Georgia. Um, you know, I think Georgia's got sites you know, big sites for big goals for this trip to Orlando. I think, like you said, they're one of the few teams, one through six, who can really hang with anybody. And if they get that doubles point working, that's the formula, right? That's how you win national titles is you can win on all six courts. You have a strong doubles point. And then it's just about putting it together on the week. For Michigan, you know, I I actually think the takeaway from the Michigan UVA matches, Michigan's very resilient and UVA probably kicking themselves a little bit. Like you said, the, the, the door was open there. You know, the, it, it's hard to win those road matches. To your point, is that one of those matches that goes differently at a neutral site? Maybe. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think credit to Michigan for, for I mean, dig, I mean, digging themselves out of a hole, right? They, they put themselves in kind of a bad spot uh, and sort of figured it out and problem solved. But yeah, I, I think the big takeaway from the UVA-Michigan match is that UVA is probably kind of kicking themselves about an opportunity loss there. Yeah, so now we get Georgia versus Michigan in the Elite Eight. And these are two teams, unlike Texas and North Carolina that we talked about, who were not in the Elite Eight last year. In fact, this is just Michigan's second quarterfinal in program history. The first came in 2016. So exciting milestones for both of these programs. I know Georgia, more of a perennial factor here in the quarterfinals. Um, Looking forward to this match because, again, you know, not a match we've seen this season. On the calculus side, I think there's a lot of pathways for Georgia in this match. I think if I only have to choose four, I mean, maybe you go dubs just because they look strong against Oklahoma. I don't even think they need it, though. Uh, singles matches I think they will like is Vidmanova at two. I think uh, Lapata at four and Meg Kowalski at five. Ultimately, I think Georgia can win in every position, the positions I feel less good about if I'm Georgia are one and six. So that kind of brings me to my Michigan calculus, which again, I don't see a way for them to win this match without doubles. They have to get doubles and then they have to get one and they have to get six. Leah Ma at one for Georgia has been really solid this year, but her level of effort in that match against Lane Sleeth was subpar. And you just don't know if you're going to get that match in match out. I think Michigan Messitrito has to win at six over Gigi Grant of Georgia. And then the last match for Michigan, I would say Fliegner over Riasco. I think that's a, a long putt for Michigan, but probably the one that is most likely to, to come to fruition. Yeah, I think if you're Georgia, this is a great draw. Like, I think this worked out great for Georgia. Georgia thinks, I promise, Georgia's not thinking about it, but Georgia thinks they can beat UNC, right? Like Georgia well, believes they've, they've they can lost beat twice UNC. to North Carolina this year. They've lost twice, but they've 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 moved the needle a little bit. I think they've they've won matches against UNC that other teams aren't winning, right? Like there are two teams in the country that have beaten Fiona Crawley. NC State is one of them, and Georgia's the other. NC State beat UNC. Okay, so like Georgia is in that very narrow very narrow group of people that really genuinely believe, I think that they can beat UNC for, for Michigan. This is, this is a 
brutal draw, right? Like you got to go south to play a southern team. This is not what Michigan would have wanted. Uh, I think Georgia, Georgia probably lost some of its its sort of glimmer because they because of what NC State did. Like Georgia winds up being the team that gets shoved out of the top three because of literally because of what NC State did. Um, But yeah, for Georgia, I I think it's I'll go on record. I will I will sign myself up to be the village fool, but. I would be more surprised if Michigan beats Georgia than if Texas beats UNC. Hmm. Yeah, I, no, I, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Yeah, I, I think I actually think Michigan is a bigger underdog against Georgia than Texas is against UNC. And that's not because of Texas or UNC as much as it is. I just think this is like kind of a terrible combination of circumstances for UNC. Like you're playing a team that can survive without a doubles point. You're playing in Orlando. You're playing a team that's really comfortable outdoors and that's really, you know, solid at all six spots. Like this is the worst. So, like yeah. if Michigan were playing a team that relies on a doubles point, Michigan feels a lot better. But Georgia's like one of the teams that can survive in matches like this without winning doubles points, which is it's tough. It's a tough match for Michigan. Yeah, it, it's the elite eight. These are all tough matches. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I think Georgia is the favorite here. I see Georgia winning this match for two. If if NC State doesn't beat UNC in the ACC finals, Georgia is probably playing Iowa State right now. Or sorry, yeah, Georgia's playing Iowa State and Michigan's playing I don't know who, right? Because the, the the draw gets flipped around. There's or, a there's a world in which you know Michigan gets a better draw and sort of just got squeezed into this. This is a this is a really bad matchup. They would trade pla- they would happily trade places with I think a number of teams. Give me two teams Michigan would trade places with. That's realistic. Uh, Stanford. Okay. Given that they just beat Texas A&M, would they rather? Who yeah. beat Texas? Okay, just no. One. I'm saying I'm saying Michigan. You're saying it's such oh, a yeah, bad yeah, draw no, for sorry, Michigan. Sorry, 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 sorry. Michigan. Yeah, I think Michigan would trade places with with Stanford, and that's that's probably. I mean, of the the lower seeds, right? Obviously, yeah. they trade places with, you know, NC State if they could, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, probably, probably just Stanford. I, I think they wouldn't be too concerned about playing. They would be less concerned about playing Texas A&M, but, uh, yeah, this was, yeah. this is so a tough, this is only, a tough There's only so much you can do though, as, there's as the five seven other here. teams. Yeah. yeah. All right. Give yeah. me your score line. I'm going Georgia four, two. I'm going Georgia four, one. Okay. All right, so those are your top half of the draw. Ethan and I agree. We expect to see a North Carolina-Georgia semifinal, which will be the third time these teams have played this year, but the first time outdoors. All right, let's move to the bottom half of the draw where the team you talked about earlier, NC State, is your number three seed. Facing number 11, Iowa State. Iowa State, the only non-top eight seed to advance to the Elite Eight. NC State, they beat Auburn in that round of 16-4-0. Iowa State beats UCLA 4-1. All right, my round of 16 takeaways from these two teams. There's a lot to talk about with NC State. I think if you're power ranking these teams, NC State probably looks the best in the country right now. They have yet to drop a point, uh, which is something none of these other teams can say. But I want to highlight NC State's depth. 
We know how good they are in doubles. We know they have a top 100 WTA player at the top of the singles. But how about Sophie Abrams and Gina Dittman at five and six? Abrams lost four straight in April, and she has really turned that around. She has won her last four, but she's really won her last seven. She's winning positions in all those matches. Gina Dittman as well, kind of winning positions or won her last seven matches. You talked about this, Ethan, you know, winning national championships. You need to be able to win a doubles point and win in all six single spots. I think NC State is really proving we know how good they are on doubles. They can really win at all six single spots. And I thought they really showed that in the Auburn match as they started to flex their muscle at five and six. My Iowa State takeaway is Naklo at number one is really rounding into form. I think she struggled at the start of the season and Iowa State was relying on doubles and Kajuru at two and Kadlachkova at four and now up to three. But Naklo's playing really solid as they've moved outdoors. She gets an excellent win over Fang Grantian of UCLA, who was undefeated in the regular season, playing at number one for UCLA. Naklo also beat Ava Markham, a top 60 player from Wisconsin. So that is, that's a big component for Iowa State, because if you're going to give up the number one spot, you're just not going to make progress deep in this tournament and they no longer feel like they are doing that so those are my two takeaways from nc state and iowa state anything to add ethan no i th- i think you kind of hit the nail on the head for both i mean for iowa state this is such a coup right like that ultimately that's the best part about all this for iowa state is like this is such a huge win for them to be in orlando playing this match if you told them you know, in January, they were going to be here, they'd probably all be like, yeah, we are, but not really believe it. So Mm -hmm. I think for for Iowa State, the mentalities going into this match are polar opposites, uh, which I think is sort of what makes this match kind of fun and weird is the the, where both teams are at mentally is going to be just, I mean, night and day from one another, which could make things interesting. I don't think it will, but it could. It's so funny you say that because in my notes, I have two programs who in some ways have a lot in common, but in others couldn't be more different. And what I mean by that is, you know, NC State five years ago, six years ago is the bottom of the pack, pun intended, in the ACC to now being tournament champions this year in kind of a five year time span. Credit to Coach Earnshaw and what he's done there. And now NC State is in their third straight quarterfinal. They made a semifinal in 2021 in Orlando. And you look at Iowa State, right? They are the Cinderella story of this season in every sense of the word. Every week, it's a new first for this program. They make the Sweet 16 for the first time. They make the Elite Eight for the first time. And, you know, so you have these more traditionally underdog programs who are just a little staggered in their uh, life cycle of becoming an underdog to a favorite. And so NC State comes in here expecting to win this match, expecting to win this tournament. And Iowa State has belief, but probably feels like it's house money at this point, right? And can go out swinging. And I think that makes for a very interesting dynamic in this match. Yeah, if, if you're Iowa State, the message is like, hey, guys, enjoy this moment, go out, play super free, don't feel pressure, you're the massive underdog here, 
you know, go out, have a great time, take this all in. We're going to, we're building. This is, this is year one, right? Like this is, this is the beginning of this program having the expectation to be here. So now is the time to enjoy it and see what you can do and go for it, right? Whereas NC State is now nearing the other side of that championship window where it's like, no, it's time to win. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it, it's time to win, right? Next year, we're not, you know, Diana Schneider's not going to be back. Right. Alana Smith's not going to be back, right? Like we're talking about an NC State team that is in like win now mode. You know, like this is the time to win. And so if if you're if you're Iowa State, you're just going in the mentality of like that team feels way more pressure than we do. Absolutely. NC State feels way more pressure to get this done than we do. Swing free, have fun, go for it. Let's see what happens where NC State is going to be dealing with. We're supposed to win. We're supposed to be in the finals. This is, you know, that's the goal. And feeling some some kind of time pressure to do so because you don't know how you bounce back from losing your top two players. So the the mentalities of the two teams, they're coming from completely different places. It's one of the few times, I think, where NC State doesn't feel like the little guy. You know, I think NC State in the ACC is able to embrace that mentality because of how dominant UNC has been. Duke has been. UN, yeah. UVA probably beat NC State to the punch in terms of the life you know, in terms of competing with those two teams, UVA got there a year early, maybe. Um, so NC State's felt like the smaller little, you know, the little guy. Now they're the big guy, right? They're, this is this is sort of that first moment where there's somebody really punching up at them, and uh, they're going to have to deal with it. It'll be a it'll be a really really interesting dynamic, I think. Yeah, that is a a really good point. And and who knows how these teams both respond to those uh, situations and those respective pressures or lack of pressure. So in terms of calculus, NC State, so strong in doubles. They're 59 and 14. You know, you feel like they're going to take the doubles point. You feel like you can bank Diana Schneider at one. I like Rejecki at three for them. Uh, particularly after Kalachkova lost, uh, you know, to Contanzerite of UCLA, and then probably five as well. Sophie Abrams playing really well. I think that's the calculus. Iowa State also a very strong doubles program, forty six and sixteen in doubles sets this season. I would go doubles. Uh, Kajuru at two has been, you know, really solid for them. I think number four is a must win for Iowa State. That's probably NC State's weakest singles point right now with Rancelli at four. And then I don't know exactly where the fourth point comes from. I think you hope Abrams at five has an off day and she goes back to her losing form and maybe you take five. But um, tough for me to see that fourth point for Iowa State, although I do feel good about two and four for them. Uh, okay, so I am going NC State for one. I'm going to go with the mean NC State for zero. Uh, I, I think NC State has the ability to win certainly on two courts quickly in straight sets. Uh, and then it's, you know, it's a little bit of a race to the finish for Iowa State. Iowa State could get points on the board. I agree with you. There are courts where I, I like Iowa State. I think it's just it's a timing thing. I'm not yeah. saying if they played this out, it would be seven zero. I, I just I think timing wise, NC State has a couple of courts that I expect to see wrapped up 
quickly. Yeah. Well, to your earlier point, just about the the pressure that NC State might be feeling, one way for Iowa State to take advantage of that would be to come out and punch early in doubles. If they can get doubles. Win the doubles point. Exactly. Win the doubles point. All right. That brings us to our final women's match. It is number two, Texas A&M versus number seven, Stanford. Both of these teams had a 4-1 victory in the round of 16, but could not have been more different 4-1 victories. Texas A&M beats Tennessee in a very close match that ultimately could have very well been decided by a tiebreak in the last doubles match. And Stanford knocks off Ohio State in a very not close 4-1 match. A lot of very straight sets, uh, not close matches for Stanford. All right. Takeaways from the round of 16 here. Look, I noted this at indoors. Texas A&M, I'm going to say, I think they're the most disadvantaged by the scheduling this year because I think this team could very well be the most athletic team in this Elite Eight. I think they are incredibly fit. And you look at some of their underclassmen at five and six, um, you know, Smetnikov and Morales. So many times I feel like they've battled back from being a set down. They did that both at against Tennessee. And I, I think Texas A&M is probably pissed <laughs> that they're going to have to play these matches under the light rather than in the, the heat of the day. Uh, but just an incredibly feisty team is the Aggies. Stanford, how can the takeaway be anything other than Angelica Blake at number three? I mean, she wins 0-0 in the round of 16 over in a very experienced Isabel Boulay of Ohio State. 15-0 at number three. She's 19-2 in dual matches this year with the only two losses coming at the number one position. Two top 15 players in Maddie Sieg of USC and Fan Grantian of UCLA. I mean, incredible season that she's been having for Stanford. So, Ethan, do you know what we are celebrating the 10-year anniversary of? 20... 20- 13 what happened in champagne i don't know what happened in champagne other than uva men winning their first national title well they were they were joined be a weird time they were joined by the stanford women women beating texas a&m 4-3 in that final nicole gibbs came back from 6-0-2-0 down reeled off 12 straight games to get her win at number one ultimately christian of stanford clinches at the number two singles position so some history here with these teams uh certainly in the ncaa tournament texas a&m making its second straight quarterfinal uh they lost last season to oklahoma in the quarterfinal stanford the winningness program in women's tennis is actually making its first quarterfinal since they won the title in Orlando in 2019. We've talked about this, just a a drought for the Cardinal for sure. Drought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a a long drought. Yeah. Long drought. So (laughs) two years, three years of drought. True. An NCAA quarterfinal. A drought indeed. Uh, All right. So Texas A&M calculus. Okay, I think it starts with doubles. Even though they've lost Carson Brandstein yeah. and it, they've had to shake up their doubles teams and they've looked a little bit more vulnerable, that has certainly been uh, 
that that's a place that, that they need to win the doubles point. They also absolutely need JC Goldsmith, the fifth year senior over freshman Alexis Blokina. Look, Blokina, <laughs> I mean, she's coaster. like roller coaster. I mean, she loses these first sets in like 15 minutes and then she'll come back from, I mean, she did this against Miyamoto of Oklahoma State. She did this against uh, Ohio State and she'll come back and, and end up winning the second set. But you're like, at that point, the match is over for Stanford. So that's a, ma- a match that uh, Texas A&M will, will want. Look, they have a top five singles player in Mary Stoyana. They will look to bank her point, even though Yepifanova, Pac-12 player of the year, has played extremely solid. And then I think it probably comes down to a split for Texas A&M at five and six, probably. Now, I will say, I think yeah, two. I agree. Salma Ewing versus Connie Ma is sneaky. You know, they played last year when Ewing was at USC. She lost to Connie 6-4-7-6. Connie Ma is not the same Connie Ma she was last year. You know, she takes the loss to uh, Ohio State. She was losing to Alana Wolfberg of Oklahoma State. This is a match that I think Ewing can actually win. Um, So I think they could get two. Uh, On the Stanford side, I've never seen Stanford doubles this strong in my entire tenure of watching Stanford. They're looking extremely strong. I mean, they had no trouble with Ohio State in doubles. I think in terms of singles, they will like Angelica Blake over the freshman Mia Kupris, even though Kupris has had a fantastic season. And then five and six are looking very strong for Stanford. Valencia Shu down the home stretch of the season, been playing lights out tennis. That is a tough number five against Oklahoma State. And against Shelly Bresniak of Ohio State. So I think those are the spots for Stanford. Ethan, why don't you go first? Who do you have advancing here into the semifinal to face NC State? Stanford 4-3. I think Stanford is like the Jaws music is playing in the background. Right? Like you all <laughs> hear it. Right? Like we're about to watch Stanford Stanford again. Right? It sort of just feels like... like you can just, it, it feels like that that team is getting better. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's where you want to be come May. But then how many teams are freaked out by Stanford in May? Like playing really well. They're, 100% Stanford is the one team that has a mental thing over most of their competition, no matter how they've looked in the past year and a half. Like, I think Stanford has this reputation that freaks people out, that they're going to just show up at the NCAA tournament as the 15 seed and be the best team in the country. Like they they're, they're scary that way. Um, I don't know if they're going to win a national title. <laughs> I don't, I don't think they are. Um, but I think with Texas A&M post Carson hasn't looked quite as dynamic. You know, I, I don't think they've looked like they have quite the same potential to win, you know, across all the spots and, and Mary Stoyana has been great, but that's not a lock against Stanford, right? You know, if if, if Texas A&M doesn't win on either one or two, this is a real problem. Like Texas A&M is in a really bad spot. And there's, that's not a, that's actually not a long putt for Stanford. Like Stanford can sweep the top three against this, this Texas A&M team that's basically been pretty rock solid in the top three with Carson, without Carson. They've looked great. Yep. Um, I just think there's there's the Stanford team. There's a lot of potential for them to pull this upset, and I need to pick one. And this is the one that I think looks the most 
promising. And I like a seven seed. I like a seven seed. So, yeah, that is a call back to the Virginia men being a seven seed last year. Look, I question how much of that Stanford aura has remained. Right? We have certainly seen yeah. that, right? Because it's been a long time. I mean, no this, tournament in 2020. I mean, it's been a long time, but it hasn't been that long of a time. That's what's funny about it is it's, it's it's the amount of turnover. It's complete yeah. turnover. That's what it is. Yeah, it's it's yeah. not actually that it's been that long because we've only had two NCAA champs since Stanford. It's just complete complete turnover, and it feels like Stanford hasn't been that close in the yeah. last two years. Exactly, that's part of it. Yeah, and it's the turnover of like the other teams as well, right? I mean, you know, like North Carolina, I think had a Stanford problem right for a very long time. This entirely new teams. Right. Like this North Carolina team has not had a Stanford problem. So I don't know if that becomes as big of a factor. I do think that Stanford is the better team in this match. Uh, I think the other thing, I mean, look, they're riding like a 21 match win streak. If you want to hear about some of the belief that this Stanford team carries, you can listen to my interview with Stanford's number one, Alexandra Yepifanova on this podcast. Uh, I had to substitute out Ethan for the week, like I mentioned. I also, think Stanford wins here. I don't know if it's going to be. Uh, okay, I'll go 4 3. I just think 4 3 is. We just haven't had fun. one. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so we'll go 4 3 here. But fun. I do think Stanford takes this match. All right. That gives us our women's Elite Eight. We are both predicting that we will see a North Carolina and Georgia semifinal out of the top half and an NC State Stanford semifinal out of the bottom half. Looking forward to all of these matches. Again, these are your Wednesday matches beginning at 5 p.m. Eastern in Orlando. 